morning, church family. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, we're going to continue in a series that we started several weeks ago called Exiles. Uh, we've been studying through the letter of 1 Peter in order to understand how we can represent Jesus even in a culture where we are exiles or strangers or foreigners because of our faith in Christ. 1 Peter uh, chapter number 4, verse 12. I, I'm going to go ahead and uh, start reading there. Uh, this morning may seem a little bit different. We're going to study a topic that maybe um, is, not, uh, is not a lot of time spent on usually. Uh, we're going to look at um, the theology of suffering and what it means to be a follower of Christ and embrace trials and tribulations all for the sake of the glory of Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse number 12. Here's what Peter wrote. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter talks in this passage about the trials that Christians go through. He uses a word to describe those trials and what they're for. He uses the word test. Now, most of us probably have negative thoughts about tests. In fact, many of you probably hate them. I would say that if we polled the room this morning, the majority of people would agree that no one likes tests. Doesn't matter if it's a test at school, although I do know that we all have that one person, that one kid who's a little bit different and seems to like them, but for the most part, none of us like tests, especially school tests. It doesn't matter if the test is at a doctor's office. None of us are looking forward in the morning to waking up and going to get tested at the doctor's office, right? Not exactly the highlight of our week. doesn't matter if it's simply a test of your patience as your kids are destroying the house. The truth is no one likes tests. However, before you flash back to some extreme trauma caused by a test when you were a kid, I want us to agree on something else. Certainly no one likes tests, or at least for the most part, they don't. But also, here's the other thing we need to agree on. Tests are important. I mean, think about it. How else will you know if you've learned something? How else will you know if you've gotten better or stronger or smarter? We need tests to show us how we've grown, and even more so, how we still need to grow. Tests show us whatever else needs to be worked on in our lives. I think about my own kids right now in the stage of life that they're in. They get test results back from their school. 
They're at whatever level it is based on math or based on reading. And the reason why we get that is so that we can know what level they are, so we can know what needs to be worked on next. We know and would agree that tests are important. However, I'd ask you another question within that same thought process. Do we realize how important tests are when it comes to our walk with Jesus? We know how important they are in other parts of our lives. We know what benefit they serve. But do we realize that as followers of Christ, tests are extremely important when it comes to our walk with Jesus? Do we realize that God tests us in order to help us see where we've grown and where we still need to continue to grow? As a matter of fact, we might not even always know what or when uh, God is actually testing. I read a story and an account that a man gave when it came to being in the military. He said, I didn't enlist in the army, I was drafted. So I wasn't going to make life easy for anyone. So during my physical, the doctor asked softly, can you read the letters on the wall? What letters? I answered slyly. Good, said the doctor. You passed the hearing test. Doesn't matter if we know what's being tested or when we're being tested. The question really is, do we trust that God is at work in our lives in the test? Do we realize that God's at work in our suffering, that God's at work in our trials? Do we realize that God's at work to show us where we've grown and where we haven't, to show us what still needs to be worked on? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote something interesting that I hope you can relate to. He wrote, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow, or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, or a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I am overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed and for a day or two, become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Can you relate to what C.S. Lewis wrote in this book? Can you relate to those words? How often does suffering or trials or various struggles in our lives actually point us back to Jesus? What if I was to tell you that suffering as a Christian has a purpose that maybe can only come through those trials? What if I told you that there are results from trials that nothing else can produce? I truly believe that what Peter's communicating is something that I hold to dearly. I believe that trials are simply tests that result in our transformation. I do. I believe the reason we go through suffering and trials and tribulations is really so that we can be tested and in a result that we will also be transformed. You say, Danny, 
what do you mean by this? Well, listen, you don't have to just take my word for it. I really believe that's what Peter's writing about in 1 Peter chapter 4. I believe he's teaching us about the results of trials and suffering and tribulation. I believe he's teaching us about the results that produce transformation in our lives. And honestly, transformation that I don't think anything else can bring about. And I want to show them to you this morning. Here's the first one. I believe that trials, tribulations, sufferings, they result in his perspective. His. I'm talking about Jesus's perspective. They give us a new look on life, a new look on our future. Trials and suffering and tribulations result in his perspective. I think that's why he wrote, look back at verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He is clear that Christians, those who are reading this letter, those churches that he's writing to, people who are following Jesus, he's clear. They will suffer. There will be trials. There will be tribulations. This is not something we should be surprised by. This is not something that should be strange to us. It should be expected. As a matter of fact, one commentator put it like this. The normal condition of the church in a world that hates Christ and that gave him a cattle shed in which to be born and a cross on which to die is one of rejection and persecution. There is no way that Christians should think that life in this world will be easy. Now, he calls them beloved, and I think there's a, there's a beauty behind this phrase. He's not talking to people who are not following Jesus. He's talking to beloved. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people in the church who've already surrendered their lives to Jesus, and I think he calls them beloved as a reminder. Hey, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. You've already identified yourselves with Christ, and if you've claimed him as the Lord and Savior of your life, and they persecuted him, well then friends, don't be surprised because you're an extension of Jesus and what they did to him, they will do to you. Perspective, right? I'm not my own anymore. I belong to him. I serve him. I live for him. I am a representation, an ambassador of him on this earth. I'm an extension. If they did it to him, why wouldn't they do it to me? I've chosen the side that I'm on, therefore suffering comes. Jesus, in fact, made this clear to his followers in John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it, had, it, it has hated me before it hated you. This is why Peter would use the phrase, as though something strange were happening to you. In Peter's mind, in Jesus' mind, it would be strange to not be experiencing attacks from the enemy. It would be strange to not be struggling in this world as foreigners and exiles. It would be strange to not be experiencing what Peter calls the fiery trial. Now listen, I don't know exactly what Peter meant by the, the phrase fiery trial, but let me tell you what it means. It means an agonizing experience of burning with fire. It's a little intense, right? It could literally be translated burning fire. 
We get a little glimpse of this from Miller's Church History, written by a guy named Andrew Miller, who gives us a little side note, a little glimpse into what life was like in the time that Peter was writing this letter to these churches. He talks about the rule and the reign of Emperor Nero and the suffering that Christians went through. I don't want to read you all of the history in the context of this moment, but I want to read you a little piece of it. And I want you to think about fiery trial as I read it to you. Listen to what Andrew Miller writes. He says, The gentle, peaceful, unoffending followers of the Lord Jesus were sown in the skins of wild beasts and torn by dogs. Others were wrapped in a kind of dress, smeared with wax, with pitch, and other combustible matter, with a stake under the chin to keep them upright, and set on fire when the day closed, that they might serve as lights in the public gardens of popular amusements. Nero would entertain his guests in the streets of Rome with Christians nailed to the stake, literally burning with fire. Now, I don't know if Peter's speaking to that when he writes the, the words, fiery trials. I don't know how much he's seen that personally. I don't know how much he knows about what's going on. I don't even know if Nero has done that yet when this letter's being written. I don't know. But if he has, then you better believe that Peter has in mind that type of suffering for those who are reading this letter. It's more important to me whether or not Peter knew that these things were actually happening, whether or not fiery trials really meant those who were burning at the stake, what does matter more to me is that Peter didn't write if it comes upon you or possibly comes upon you. He writes when it comes upon you to test you. Friends, this brought a question to my mind. Do you see the trials in this life as a test or as a pest? What I realized is that those fiery trials can lead you away from Christ or they can strengthen your walk with Christ. The question is, do you have the right perspective when you think about the suffering that you endure as a follower of Jesus? Listen to how another commentator wrote about this passage of Scripture. He said, a lot of Christians believe they should be fireproof. Their first reaction is just the thing Peter rejects, surprise. Too often I hear objections like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Or why doesn't God protect me from these things? Or why is God allowing this to happen to me now? But Peter responds to this normal reaction of surprise with an important reminder. The fiery trials comes on believers for their testing. Like refining fire that tests and purifies gold, separating the precious metal from its impure contaminants, the fire of trials test and purify deep within. I think this is why Peter would go on to write in verse 13, but rejoice. Now pause for a moment and think about that. Danny, Peter's talking about suffering. He describes the trials and tribulations they're dealing with with the word fiery. This can't be desired. This can't be wanted. This can't be what they're looking forward to. Of course not, friends. That's not the perspective. The perspective is not the suffering. The perspective is the Savior over the suffering. The perspective is seeing Jesus through the midst of our trials, through the midst of our tribulations. The perspective is that this is not our home. This is not our end. We are simply passing through to something so much greater. This is why Peter would write, but rejoice. 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I know it's bad now. I know it doesn't seem good. I know you may not understand why it's happening, but he goes on. He says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, this is the perspective we need. Trials can point us to something so much bigger, so much better. Matter of fact, Peter's already mentioned this to the early church back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Here's what Peter wrote. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what praise and glory and honor represents to me? It represents this word that Peter uses, rejoice. By the way, can I just remind you, Peter's not talking about suffering as if he's never experienced it. No, no, no. In this case, he remembers what it was like when he had the opportunity to to see what Jesus was doing and work on his behalf, but yet he denied him. He remembered what that failure felt like. And so every time a new suffering came, a new trial, a new tribulation, he saw it as a way in which Jesus was at work in his life. His perspective changed. You said, Danny, what do you mean? Well, in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and John healing a lame man by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what happens because of that? They get beaten, they get imprisoned, they get threatened. You know what? They're released, and guess what they do? They still proclaim the name of Jesus. You know what happens shortly after that? They're beaten, they're imprisoned, and they're threatened again. All because of the name of Jesus. They're suffering because of their faith. Yet when all this was done, here's what we hear about Peter and John. This is in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42. Listen to this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Listen to this perspective from another commentary writer. He wrote, what can the devil do with such men? Lock them up in prison, and they win the jailers to Christ, or spend their time writing deathless epistles that expose all of Satan's wiles. Turn them loose, and they turn the world upside down. Beat them, and you make them partakers of Christ's sufferings, and fill their souls with song. Kill them, and you promote them to glory, and make them candidates for a martyr's crown. This is why Peter writes that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Though we suffer now, we look to something beyond our wildest dreams. Listen to this in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, and don't miss this, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, there's that rejoice moment again, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How could that be joy? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why could he have joy? Why could he rejoice? He knew this wasn't the end. He was passing through to something greater. 
Listen to how James puts it in chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Listen, those who suffer now with Jesus will also experience glory with him for all eternity. What more do we need to rejoice? Do the trials that you deal with help you have the perspective that you need, looking to the future and what we have in Jesus, regardless of what happens now. Because let me tell you something, they result in his perspective. Let me show you something else, though. They result in his presence. I love this. 1 Peter 4, 14, look back at that verse. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Listen, he doesn't say if you have a big house, He doesn't say if you get a whole lot of money. He doesn't say if everything goes your way. He doesn't say if everything happens the way you think it should. No, no, no. That's not what he says. He says if you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you suffer for Jesus, rejoice. He says if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why are you blessed? Because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory rests upon you. I love what Jesus said to his first followers before he left this earth. You may remember it, you may not. It's a pretty famous passage of Scripture. It comes in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore, it's Jesus, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I love it. Don't miss this last part. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He told us he would be with us. Matter of fact, the word rest gives us a picture of other times that the Holy Spirit rested on someone. He rested on Jesus when he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3. The Spirit rested on the early church in Acts chapter 2 before they began to change the world. Each time the Spirit rested on someone, it was a sure sign of the work that God was doing in the lives of others. Friends, we can be sure of this. That as we suffer for Jesus, the Spirit of God rests on us because He is at work. Friends, I don't know how bad yesterday was, but His mercies are new every day. I don't know how deep your struggle is right now, but the greater need you have, the more grace and the more mercy He lavishes on you. Listen, the deeper it goes, the more suffering that happens, the more trial, the more tribulation, the harder it gets the closer Jesus feels. Friends, listen to me. What if that suffering, that trial, that tribulation, that hardest moment that you didn't think you could ever get through, what if that moment produced the greatest presence of God in your life? Would you still want it? Might not happen any other way. Do you understand why suffering may come? One commentator wrote about the Spirit's presence in those who are suffering like this. He said, the presence of the Holy Spirit means that God is present with them now to teach them, empower them, guide them, and enable them to do greater things than Jesus did, just as Jesus taught in John, in the Gospel of John. Yet, 
Though he says we will suffer as he suffered, the world hated him, he will hate us. We are blessed as so many others were throughout Scripture who suffered for God. Friends, that's what it means to realize we are blessed. How often do trials push us closer to God? Do you realize his presence in the midst of your suffering? Friends, listen, they result in his perspective. We see something greater than what's here. They result, friends, in his presence. The deeper it goes, the closer he will come. The more we can't walk, the more he will put us on his shoulder and carry us. Friends, can I show you something else? They result in his praise. I love this. Look back at verse 15. He said, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now listen, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because here's what we know. You do bad things, you deserve to be punished. That's not called persecution or suffering. That's called justice, right? You kill somebody, you are justly judged for whatever you did. You with me? For those people out there who are talking about, well, I suffered for Jesus because I did something bad and now I'm hurting for it. And I tell you, I'm just, I'm a Christian and that's, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just living for Jesus and suffering. For, no, 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 friends, listen, you do something stupid, you get punished for it. Don't put that on Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, not as a murderer, not as a thief, not as an evildoer, not as a meddler. We all been down that road before. No, no, no. He's saying now that you claim Christ, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But watch this. Let him glorify God in that name. You see it? Those trials, those tribulations, those things that are pushing you to your very end might be the greatest opportunities for you to reflect Jesus to the world. Are they helping you bring glory to the name of Jesus? I think it's interesting that Peter uses the word Christian. It's fascinating. I think he uses the phrase to help enforce the fact that they shouldn't be ashamed when they suffer as a Christian. They have chosen to identify themselves with Jesus. But the reason why the phrase Christian or that word is interesting in this moment is because when Peter's writing this letter, this is not a positive term to use for people who follow Jesus. This, in fact, is something extremely negative. It wasn't used to speak of a particular type of people, but rather to make fun of them. It's used in Antioch first in Acts chapter 11. It's used again when King Agrippa says to Paul that he was almost persuaded to be a Christian. That's in Acts 26. And then Peter uses it here in 1 Peter chapter 4. I think the reason why he brings this out is because even though this term was used as an insult to those who followed Christ, Peter reminds them not to be ashamed, but to take that term, take that phrase, Take that distinction and glorify God in that name. I think we did a pretty good job of that. Now when somebody talks about a Christian, it's a good thing to be called. We use the word to describe all people who have trusted in Jesus with their lives. Friends, do you realize that trials are presenting more opportunities to give God praise? Let me show you another one. They result in his purification. Look back at verse 17 and 18. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now listen, I want you to think about the word judgment not as a, a punishment, but as a distinguishing between good 
and evil. Jesus uses the same word in John chapter 9. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus wasn't punishing anyone in the moment that he used this word. He was simply using a miracle in a blind man's life to show the difference between those who follow him and those who don't. Friends, in a similar fashion, God has allowed persecution to take place so that the church can be purified. Persecution separates those who truly serve Christ from those who don't. There are many then and there are many now who claim to know Jesus, but they really don't. And when trouble comes, when suffering hits, when tribulation is real, where do they run and where do they turn? That's what persecution does. But I also think persecution and suffering also purifies the believer's heart. I mean, there are things in us that we need to test to see if they should remain. Do those things honor Jesus? And suffering is a good way for us to test them. I love what one commentator said. He said, the household of God not only needs daily dusting and sweeping, but also it needs periodic spring cleaning. I was thinking about my Sunday school class when I was reading this passage of Scripture. We've been meeting in the fellowship hall for the past several months. We just need the extra space. But anyway... There are things that are aggravating to me about meeting in that particular space. I'll give you a few of them. The air conditioner is super loud. When it comes on, I can't hear what anybody else is saying or reading or whatever the case is. The air conditioner comes on and everything else in my mind shuts off. And I complained about that. I thought, you know what? We should just turn the air conditioner off. But do you see me right now? I love the air conditioner. So I thought to myself, the air conditioner is super loud, but aren't we glad we have air conditioning? Amen? The students, where we meet for Sunday school, are right above us. And they make a lot of noise when they move to their Sunday school classes. I made the joke this morning, although I really, I don't want to be offensive to the students. I I love you guys. But I made the joke this morning that I think they're like in WWE up there. They're like taking the chairs and smashing each other over the head with them because it sounds like destruction is going on. And I'm thinking, man, I can't hear anything when the students move to their Sunday school classes. But then it hit me. Aren't we glad we have young people learning about Jesus? Of course we are think we can deal with the noise, right? I thought about how the room's really too big. I hate all the space that's in there. Wish we were in a class. And then I thought, but aren't we glad that we have that many people wanting to study the Bible together? And listen, it reminded me of something so important. You said, Danny, why are you talking about your Sunday school class? Here's why. The product is so much more important than the pain. You can't have diamonds without pressure. My favorite that I've heard recently is, you can't have sweet tea without hot water. Do we realize that that's what these tests are doing? Do we realize this with the tests that come through various trials in our life? Do we realize the results of those trials? What diamonds are resulting from pressure? What goodness comes from the hot water? Now listen, don't miss this last little part. 
If it begins with us, right, the cleaning up of the household of God, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Friends, I think this is certainly a warning for those who don't believe in Jesus. Peter's quoting from Proverbs 11. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. The follower of Jesus may experience suffering and difficulty now, but it is nothing compared to the wicked and the sinner, and what they will experience in eternity. But I also think it's also about our motivation for those who don't know Jesus. There are so many people who aren't following Christ. What will happen to them if we don't tell them about Jesus? Friends, do you see your trials as God's way of purifying your life and this world? Let me show you the last one. This is it, number five. It's too many, I know, but I had five, so I'm finishing. Trials, tribulations, suffering. Do we realize that they result in his purpose? Do we realize that? Here's what Peter wrote in verse 19 of chapter 4. He said, therefore, it's how he wraps it up. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. By the way, don't miss that. You say, Danny, is it God's will for me to be going through what I'm going? Possibly. There are times when he wills trials and tribulation and suffering so that we will be more like him. Don't miss it. Therefore. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you see the push? Do you see how they result in his purpose? Listen, our response to suffering must be to continue to trust our God who is faithful. Peter reminded us that Jesus did this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Here's what he wrote. When he was reviled, he's talking about Jesus. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here's the word, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As a matter of fact, the word entrust is the same word that Jesus used while on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. We can trust him in all things because he is always faithful. Can I give you a phrase that helps us really see this? God is too loving to be unkind. He is too wise to make any mistakes, and he is too powerful to be hindered in his purposes. Friends, he is faithful. God always takes our disappointments and makes them his appointments. Listen, there are countless moments of this throughout scripture where God took something that was meant for bad and he turned it into something good. Maybe you think about Joseph being sold into slavery only to become a great leader in Egypt and to save his family from famine. Maybe you think about Ruth when her husband died, but then she met Boaz who became her kinsman redeemer and she is forever a part of the lineage of Jesus. Or maybe you think about Job who suffered in order to show us how to endure. Or maybe you think about David who suffered at the hands of King Saul, but in that suffering, he produced some of the greatest hymns from the book of Psalms. Maybe you think about some of the greatest words of God that were written, by the way, by apostles who were sitting in prison. Or how about Jesus himself suffered so that we could be made right with God? Friends, can I tell you something? We may not understand why something happens, but we can trust what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, I even made this a little more personal. 
I talked to some of our staff earlier this week. I asked them, what things in your life, how have you suffered that have pointed you more to Jesus? How have you suffered that have helped result in God's purpose in your life? I want to share a couple of them with you. You may not know this, but Corey's mom died when he was 17 years old. I knew Miss Becky. She was wonderful. Can't imagine how a teenager would deal with the death of their mother. Can't imagine how difficult it must have been for Corey. But listen, through that trial, God eventually used relationships that he would have never had that probably pushed him to surrender to ministry. It wouldn't have happened without that trial in his life. You may not know this, but Courtney battled cancer several years ago. Because of that battle, she wasn't sure what her family would look like or how many children her and Jeremy would have. However, God has blessed their family through adoption in ways that might never have happened without that trial. And who knows what those boys' families would look like today. You may not know this, but my parents got divorced when I was younger. For those of you who've been through divorce, you know what kind of struggle that is. However, I don't even know if I would be a follower of Jesus without that happening. Because God used that trial in my family to lead me to relationships that I made because of that, that eventually led me to Jesus. Listen, understanding or full comprehension of what God is doing isn't a requirement. You know what is? Obedience. This is why Paul wrote in Philippians 4, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or what about what James wrote in chapter 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or what about what Job said in response to his suffering? His family and property being taken away from him. His wife telling him to kill himself. His friends criticizing him. His own body and health being taken. His life being claimed as wicked. Yet, here's what Job said. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Friends, he is faithful. So keep being faithful. Keep doing good and serving the one who is always faithful. Listen, I looked up the word test this week in the dictionary, and I found one definition that was interesting. It was defined as the trial of the quality of something. That's how they defined the word test. I thought to myself, how are the trials that God has given you, how are they becoming opportunities for God to transform your life? Let me help you process it. Listen to this. Have the trials, the tribulations that you've experienced, have they resulted in his perspective? Rather than see them as obstacles, do you see them as opportunities for future glory? Have they resulted in his presence? Friends, how many times have our struggles and our trials pushed us closer to Jesus? How many times have we been in such darkness that we say, I've never been closer to God than in these moments? Maybe right now you're dealing with some type of suffering and that's what God's wanting to show you. He's there. In those moments, there is more mercy and more grace. He is lavishing on you power that you never knew existed. Why? Because his presence is so near. Have they resulted in his praise? Might you be dealing with a particular trial even today that will better reveal God's glory to the world? Have they resulted in his purification? Not that he needs it, but that he wants to do it in you. 
Have you been going through something difficult so that God can make you more like Jesus? Have they resulted in his purpose? What if that trial is the very thing that will lead to God's plan for your life? Do you see it that way? Do you long for it that way? Do you want his purpose to be done in you? Friend, whatever the case, God is using trials as tests that result in transformation. How is he wanting to transform you today? Listen, I wanna close with this statement. It's from one of my favorite commentary writers. Here's what he said about this text. The tests and trials we endure as Christians are never wasted or mistaken. God never says, whoops, made a mistake. That was meant for Frank, sorry, Bob. No, he doesn't toss trials into the lives of a hundred believers, hoping to affect a few. Friends, God doesn't hope, he knows. God has designed a specific curriculum for each of us, a particular course of study designed to bring out the virtuous character of Christ deep within our lives. These uniquely designed and tailor-made trials provide the needed stimulus to drive us to the Lord and produce measurable spiritual growth. Friends, do you understand suffering? Do you realize how important it is in the life of believers? Do you realize why Jesus not only allows us, but even causes us into some trials that will make us more like him? If we knew that what we were going to go through would bring greater glory to the name of God, would we then, instead of complain, invite the suffering into our lives? Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're right in the middle of something. Are you seeing it as Jesus sees it? Are you allowing it to shape you and make you more like him? Listen, you might be in here right now and you say, Danny, I don't even think God exists. There's no way there could be so much hurt and pain and badness in the world if God was real. Friends, you could not be more wrong. All that badness only points more to his goodness. Don't you want that? Wouldn't you rather follow him? Of course you would. Listen, I don't know where you are. You need Jesus. Listen, I'm gonna be in that lobby in just a moment. I'd love to take my Bible, tell you how you can follow him. You got some kind of pain that's just really heavy on you and you need prayer. Listen, I'm gonna be in that lobby. I'd love to pray for you. But here's what I know. For most of us in this room, we just need to spend some time with Jesus and understand that whatever's going on, whatever we're dealing with, however it is that the, the things around us are happening, God's at work in all of it. And friends, he is always faithful. Will we surrender to his will above our own? Now is our chance to respond. Listen, when his word's preached, it demands a response from us. What's God asking of you today? Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Praise you. You're awesome.